Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of Rewind, the official podcast of the History Society of St. Stephen's College. The podcast aims to make history and its various aspects more accessible and interactive and to facilitate simplified conversations between students and historians, academics, writers and curators. Joining us today for the podcast is Dr. Peggy Mohan. She's a linguist and uh, in a recent book titled Wanderers, Kings, Merchants, she has explored the history of India through the diverse languages spoken in the country. This is the theme of today's discussion, that how generations of migrations of various communities into the Indian subcontinent led to various sorts of linguistic developments and has resulted in the multitude of languages that are spoken in, the in, in India presently. Before we start off with the questions, I would just like to uh, tell you, Dr. Mohan, that uh, I was hooked on to the to, and so intrigued with the book. I still am. I keep on quoting things from it to my friends every now and then. Uh, we surround ourselves with languages all the time, and you have just made me, and I'm pretty sure that other readers as well, more observant, uh, observant of the intricate details which uh, are present in uh, languages. It is just simply fascinating. So uh, my first question to you is uh, that trying to reconstruct the history of India through its languages and linguistic developments is relatively a novel field. When you started your research, what kinds of works existed about Indian languages and their history? Was it challenging the conventional trends of linguistic historiography? Well, I didn't start with India because I actually was born in the Caribbean and in the Caribbean, we've been looking at how languages have developed because we have a very unusual sort of language there called a Creole. And a Creole is different from what all the philologists expect, namely, it's a language of West African background with a West African structure, but all the words are European. They're either French or they're English or they're Dutch or Portuguese. So here we have a, something not expected, namely a language which can completely switch its vocabulary over while its innards, its DNA, its skeleton are what they were before. Because basically you might have noticed if you travel around in India or anywhere else, that the first thing you can pick up is new nouns. So and not just nouns, eventually any words. So words are the easiest thing to shift across to a new language, especially when the people who are suddenly thrown together share a grammar, but don't have words in common. So they've managed to find new words either slowly or suddenly, if it's a situation of chaos. So I looked at that, I looked at, separately the whole story of uh, Europe, the Mediterranean languages, which seem to be similar, but I'd studied Latin. They were a little different from Latin. Latin had all the Karaks and so like Sanskrit and French and Spanish, Italian, Romanian didn't. Well, Romanian did, but for some other reason, because it's linked to languages to the East, like Russian, which have it. Uh, and then I came to India and I studied Sanskrit and I saw exactly the same thing. I saw a bunch of languages which have some sort of vocabulary in common all across the north of India, 
Um, the grammars were not completely the same and they were fairly different from Sanskrit. If you studied Sanskrit in school or in college, you know straight away that there's a lot of new stuff. And especially if you learn Vedic Sanskrit, there's a lot of very unfamiliar stuff. Sanskrit started picking up a few local features as time went by. So I said to myself, what's going on? And what we find is that in many parts of the world where there are migrations, you have men doing the migrating. I didn't have any data until geneticists came into the picture to tell me that in fact, yes, in India too, the migrants at all times, except the very first ones were mostly men. So you had men coming in from abroad, meeting local women. And then suddenly you had two streams merging the women's language, which is what they passed on to the children, which is where they have their worldview, their mindset, their notions of grammar. And then you have the men who like sperm donors give the vocabulary. So it's very easy to see these two separate streams. So I've been thinking for years, what's going on and why is India so familiar? And I started looking at it, uh, looking at how Sanskrit developed and then bit by bit got into the most exciting thing of all. Why do the North Indian languages uh, look so different from Sanskrit and so different from the Prakrits too. So I began to see a pattern going where something of the North Indian languages preserved something older, much older than Sanskrit. And if it is older than Sanskrit, we know what was really there in the area. And we saw diversity across the North of India where the East from Banaras to the east was completely different in terms of its grammar. And to the west, again, different, and different from anything else on earth in terms of some of its grammatical forms. So I got very excited thinking that just as the women of Europe met Roman soldiers and picked up the words, but then totally different sounding languages like French and Spanish, came up, did something similar happen here? So I decided I would trace that. So um, there are lots of follow-ups which I have because all this is very interesting. So you, speak, uh, you spoke of uh, Caribbean and your uh, paternal side of family is uh, from Trinidad, if I'm not sure, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, you've mentioned that you grew up in a Bhojpuri speaking uh, family. And uh, how was um, this realization like that uh, the Bhojpuri which you spoke in Trinidad has mm. about millions of speakers halfway around the globe? When did you realize it? See, we never called it Bhojpuri when I was a kid. We thought it was Hindi, but with lots of mistakes. And I was aware that the Hindi that one saw and studied, because I wanted to study it, most people didn't study Hindi, didn't look like this. Even words were different. Simple words, like the word for a dog. We have a word that's similar to the Bengali word. And uh, nobody told me that it was Bhojpuri. And I was probably one of the first people after a professor of mine mentioned it vaguely to me. Oh, you know, this is Bhojpuri. And I said, let me read up about it. But yes, in my family, 
you would hear it. My grandmother was there, my great grandfather, but of course, educated people will make a great effort not to speak it. They wanted to speak Hindi when they had to speak anything Indian. So people who came to visit them would be speaking to them in Bhojpuri. And I would hear these different things, Hamjaila and Mejati Hoon. So they're all completely different kinds of languages. And the funniest thing I found when I came to India is bit by bit of the food we eat, the way we talk, the words we use are closer to what Bengalis use than people of Delhi. So all this time we've been saying that we are Hindi speakers, uh, we got confused. We, so we thought, were we Hindi speakers who got lost, mixed up our language, but why would we mix it up in this way? And then I saw all the Assamese, Uriya, Bengali, and the other uh, dialects of Bihar. And I said, we are a different subfamily of North India. And uh, well, we have been in the Caribbean for what? 140 years. Maybe that, that's about how long many of us, I think the migration started in uh, 1849, ended in 1919, and about a, a lakh and a half Indians went, mostly um, from the north. Yeah. So um, do all kind of migrations like lead to such linguistic changes or is it a certain pattern which is followed when migrations happen? No, there are all kinds of migrations. I believe, for example, people have always been migrating into India, but they come, they merge. People have been migrating into Kerala. What do they do? They pick up Malayalam because they're coming in ones and twos. That kind of migrant doesn't leave much trace. What you find are the migrants who come with a certain amount of military power, a certain amount of attitude, uh, and come together in a wave, then you find that political situations are upturned. For example, in the Vedic era, uh, the Vedic men, because they were almost all men, according to the geneticists, uh, they did come, but uh, they must have had a certain amount of military capacity because they left a stamp that an ordinary migrant would not do. So the difference between two kinds of migrants are those who come in and establish their presence and become important for whatever reason, create kingdoms, and those who just go in and blend. Those generally don't tend to leave a trace. So um, what happened exactly with Sanskrit, as in the Sanskrit which we know today, is it different than the one we are talking about? Um, how different is it with the one uh, spoken in the Vedic era? Okay, let's go all the way back to the very start of the Vedic era, the Rig Vedic era. Uh, what my professor Madhav Deshpande said to us in class in 1976 was that uh, he had a lot of evidence from his studies and from reading texts about uh, linguists, ancient linguists going and copying the, or memorizing the Rig Veda hundreds of years later, that there was an earlier form of Sanskrit which did not have the 
which is something very uniquely subcontinent. You don't really find it anywhere else in the world. You find it all over Pakistan, all over India, except perhaps the Tibetan zones, the two little tribal languages that don't have it, all over Bangladesh, not the Northeast, not, not even Assamese. So here's something that's like an Indian marker. The these kinds of order, which you get in the uh, towards um, east of Delhi and Delhi. So there's a lot of evidence that that found its way into Sanskrit slowly. Slowly, meaning the Rig Veda, it found its way in slowly. But I can imagine that spoken Sanskrit, which we have no record of, must have picked it up almost immediately. And why would I think that? Because the woman that got married to the Vedic men and the, the people who were associated with them were speaking languages which were Indian. And being Indian, they would have probably not so much of la that was elsewhere, but, but it's all over the Prakrits. So the Children, the first generation who would have been the, the, the natural heirs of the men who wrote the first bits of the Rig Veda, they would have spoken with their mothers some variety of Sanskrit, which had and probably Yula. And when they went later, when they were probably five years old, maybe 10 years old, and went to study with their fathers, um, they were pretty much taken over if they were boys and reacculturated into a new uh, language and culture, which didn't have it. Just the same way as Farsi when it came to India, it never had dharna. And it never got it, but then Farsi came with a script. Sanskrit did not have a script. It was all done through memorization. So my assumption is that if it came into the Rig Vedic recitation much later, it must have come into normal speech much earlier. In fact, almost immediately, because the only time that something tends to get absorbed in a language is immediately. After all, if you've adjusted, what's the need for change? The, the kind of thing that you would see, like uh, picking up uh, the, the kind of mixture that you would see would have to happen almost immediately in the first generation. And we have just no evidence of what these people spoke. Uh, when they were not reciting the Rig Veda. We can only guess at it. But from everywhere in India that there have been migrants, there's been a difference between what they spoke when they were just conversing and what they actually kept as their important religious language. Um, so it's all very amusing because the whole uh, the, the, the sound and the pronunciation, the enunciation of Hura, um, mm. When I was in school, I studied Sanskrit till eighth grade, and the teacher was very uh, strict about the whole enunciation thing. And it's uh, very uh, fascinating to see that this element was not originally a part of Sanskrit. Mm. 
so um, and uh, you said uh, the the language with the mother spoke uh, it like they led to uh, sort of introduction of these uh, elements in sanskrit so what was the language which women were speaking uh, it's a- it's a mystery in fact there's a linguist who refers to it simply as language x but we have some clues at least i think i have some clues if you look at all the things that are in if hindi is your language if marathi is your language konkani uh punjabi gujarati uh anything from rajasthan if these are your languages you will have a few features that don't match sanskrit or they don't match early sanskrit for example if you want to say in hindi uh as the, my favorite example i eat food i'm female right and in hindi for example you have to have gender which is not strange sanskrit has gender okay this has gender too so main khana khati hu but if i ate food suddenly i am not important anymore you usually you just say khana khaya and it becomes khaya it's not referring to me at all it's referring to the food and it's not i ate because it's not i it's many by me so by me food is not eat not ate but eaten now what is very interesting about this feature and there are so many people who have done their phd dissertations on this in india without asking the larger question why is it all over one particular part of india going all the way into southern iran for a long time and nowhere else nowhere else probably on earth you don't have this kind of notion that you should change the the past you always say food eaten uh work done not i did work Oh this is a very strange kind of structure and if it's not in, it came into sanskrit eventually uh so that anybody who's done uh, classical sanskrit for example kalidas um is familiar with it it's all over the prakrits it's all over uh everything from exactly 3000 years back you start seeing this in in avesta and everything where does it come from so my best guess is this has to be a feature of the people who lived in the harappan region and their spread but it stops somewhere around banaras you don't get it at all to the east so little clues in the way we speak right now tell us a lot about the past and we may in fact be the harappans maybe me a little less because my family is from further to the east but um i've got a bit of both uh, some from aligarh some from fazabad so you can see maybe um so you talked about a certain pattern being followed about uh, the use of verbs uh to the east east of banaras and the west of banaras uh as in uh, the emphasis laid on certain words and i am from varanasi or banaras mm-hmm. and uh the hindi we speak here is also uh, sort of similar to uh the um aspect which is uh, typically ascribed to magadhan as in instead mm-hmm. of saying things ki main ja raha hu 
वी से हम जा रहे हैं सो इवन इन हिंदी मगधन which you talk about in the book so can you please yeah. uh, to uh, like through light on by varanasi is uh, like is there a particular reason why varanasi is a focal yeah. point yeah let me see if i can explain this when i visited the genetics lab in harvard one of the researchers said to me that according to their findings there was a difference in the gene pool uh, to the east of Well, that area, I would say Varanasi, but maybe just that general area, and to the west. And could I find it in the language? And I remember saying, "Have you found it too?" Yes, of course. It's like two tectonic plates colliding, and that's just about the area where the Magadhan zone and the western zone. Uh, tend to be i would not even give another name to the western zone the western zone is to in my way of thinking the people who are linked to the harappans whereas to the east they are the magadhans later they were probably called the magadhans the history is very different there what you find is that there's less of a well people like to say dravidian because uh, the harappans we we think of as being some form of dravidian maybe not identical to the ones that are in the south but as you move further to the east you find people who were much more mundas original migrants to india from africa and they had one further mixture in them which is approximately 4000 years ago which is in fact before the vedic people appeared in india or in the indus area there was a migration from southeast asia which ultimately is like almost southern china and these people came in bringing rice with them and they found people in the gangetic plains who were already growing rice and they hybridized the two rices and we got what we now have and when you have a good a uh, successful hybrid variety you get a huge yield and when you have a huge yield you have a population growth suddenly now that population also grew in one different way if you do a genetic test on the people of the area especially the people who are tribal you will find that most of the gene pool on the male side is from southeast asia whereas on the mother side it's from original indians first indians so that's a different mix from the vedic indo european language stream with a dravidian two completely different things however over time uh as the first the kuru empire and the whole notion of kingship the with brahmins uh, advising them spread all over north india what you got was prakrits all across the place which were fairly similar to each other the, my way of looking at the prakrits is that the differences between them were quite minor which is a way of saying that the elites all across the whole north indian zone going down south into maharashtra 
and down as far as Konkan. The elites were more similar to each other, but the little people were not. So the little people were speaking these completely different languages. And as time passed, they adopted into them, like the, as happened in the Creoles in the West Indies, they adopted all the words from the Prakrits, but they didn't look like the Prakrits. For example, if you look at Magadan Prakrit, it will be, it will have the equivalent of Mene Kanakaya, which you don't get in the Magadan zone in the modern languages. So the modern languages are basically something very old and mixed with between Munda and Southeast Asian with an overlay, a paint coat of Prakrit words. And so what you get is words that will be familiar to somebody. If you, if you know Hindi, you can understand a bit of words from Bengali, some words from Marathi, but the grammars are quite different. The sounds are quite different. So basically it's like saying the foundation is very different, but as you keep building, you try to get a little similarity. The coat of paint is the same. Um, and the, with a little differences. Yeah. So uh, what were these Prakrits exactly? I mean, were they spoken in uh, India alongside Sanskrit or were they spoken before Sanskrit came to India? How did Prakrit uh, came on the scene? Well, this is going to be my assumption of it. Yeah. Because I know that people who are very purist about Sanskrit are going to get upset with any tiny little variation from Sanskrit in pronunciation, any kind of different Sandhi rules which are not expected in Sanskrit. However, what I find when I look at Prakrits is they just sound like people trying to speak Sanskrit. The grammar is in no way different from the Sanskrit of that time. Uh, the words are obviously Tadbhava type words, but you just don't get the feeling of a hybrid language. You just get, you get more the feeling of a local accent being added in, different sounds coming in, uh, different Sandhi rules, but it is essentially, it's like you and me speaking Indian English. It's not very distinguishable from any other international English. And I feel that that's what happened. Prakrit was not a rough and ready street variety. This was an elite language. The people who spoke sans, uh, Prakrits uh, often even were literate later on. They wrote uh, Emperor Ashoka was most certainly a literate man. So the Prakrits represented the approximation of Sanskrit done by the elites. And Sanskrit itself was something that Prakrit speakers started learning to read and write or, or memorize when they got to about the age of 10, especially if they were boys. So Sanskrit was by then not even a mother tongue. And the mother tongues were Prakrit. And the little people who had no political power, who were probably farmers, who uh, were speaking probably something quite much more similar to the tribal languages everywhere, uh, 
they just painted these words over time onto their languages and what you got. So when, for example, when, when people say, but then why should um, Bhojpuri be so different from Hindi when Magadan Prakrit was so similar to the Prakrits of that area? That's because the Prakrits were spoken by the elites and the elites were fairly similar to each other across the landmass. Whereas the little people speaking their original languages were not. You got the variety of India really captured by that uh, tectonic plate colliding in the Banaras area. Um, okay, let me bring in a little bit of politics in here, or uh, modern day politics, because we are mm -hmm. often told to uh, go back to the Vedic age something very glorious, something very indigenous of our sorts. But when we look at these patterns of uh, mm. linguistic changes, we find that Sanskrit is not as indigenous as it, as it seems. So uh, when, did, uh, like, when did this whole notion of Sanskrit being something of very, uh, very own, which was born mm. and developed in India, when did this notion came into scholarly writing? Like how? Yeah. It's slightly complicated. If you look at the kind of structures in Sanskrit, you'll find that they match what is there in Avestan in Iran. It match, I, when I learned Sanskrit after having learned Latin, I just said, I've seen this before. Uh, even words were similar. Not forget about karaks and all these kinds of funny tenses. And so uh, Agni was similar to Ignis. Um, there are, I can probably dredge up quite a lot of other words. It, it was quite clear that these languages were related. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean automatically that Sanskrit came from somewhere else? Well, initially nobody knew if it came from somewhere else where that somewhere else would be. They used to say a lot of funny things like, the Caucasus. Now the Caucasus has 50 languages out of which only three are vaguely related to the Indo-European family. Uh, and when I say vaguely, I mean things like Ossetian or Armenian, then they're not close. So it was not the Caucasus. And they said, okay, Turkey, it was not Turkey either, it, as it turns out. So to some extent, I understand why people in India would say, well, if it wasn't either of those, why not India itself? And uh, the reason that people suggested originally that it must be somewhere in Europe was obviously those were colonial times and everything good came to India from Europe as far as they were concerned. So until there was any genetic evidence about who these people might be, it was up for grabs. But by, from the time you got some genetics into it and you noticed that people uh, with a particular haplogroup, the R haplogroup, all trace back at a certain time through the male line to somewhere, which is roughly the Ukraine at the moment. Uh, and the other opposite thing is that everybody who has, is of Indian descent, um, at least through the mother's side, has a different haplogroup, which is an M haplogroup, which is first Indians. 
Now, the only people outside of India who have this are the gypsies and the NRIs. So it's very interesting that um, genetics came in and gave us a place where they might have come from, because until then it wasn't certain. But it's very, I have a different reason for thinking that Sanskrit came to India and spread because it is still spreading. It, it is not as though it started spreading uh, 3,500 years ago and then it stopped. It didn't stop. This thing is, you, if you look carefully in Nagaland, you'll find a language coming up called Nagamese which is so similar to Assamese. And it's like this whole pattern is still continuing. And I think since I, I have to put it in this direction because you are, it's mirror imaging. Yeah, yeah. Similarly, when I went to Sikkim and Darjeeling, after writing the book, I said, oh, I wish I had come here earlier because here is a Tibetan zone and what's coming in? Nepali. And the Nepali is sounding a little different from the Nepali of uh, Kathmandu, but you're seeing again the so-called Indo-Aryan languages pushing further and further. So, and even, well, I suppose you could say Dakini, you're getting the mix of something that is pushing southwards and meeting something that's already there. So it's like a, volcanic eruption where the lava is still spreading. And if it's still spreading, it's spreading into India, not out of India. Um, so um, you've talked about something called money problem, which is spoken in um, mm. Kerala. So I think this is also an example of how Sanskrit spread to mm. uh, South India. Please like talk a little bit about it. Yeah. Kerala was quite different, in fact. If you look at it, uh, all the North Indian languages, modern North Indian languages, the words are, to use a good Sanskrit word, tadbhavas. They have all come, the vocabulary has come from the Prakrits, not from Sanskrit. So the only language where it's from the very beginning only come from Sanskrit itself is Malayalam. And that's because at some point, the Nambudri Brahmins who came, they used to write their epics uh, in Sanskrit, but they had been there since the eighth century, but somewhere around the 12th century, 12th century is a very magical era in Europe and in India. A lot of things changed. A lot of uh, importance of Prakrits and Sanskrit started to decline. Regions began to, develop their own centers of gravity. And I think there had been a few wars, there had been the conquest of the Buddhists, yeah. and suddenly... We refer to as early medieval India, and um, the chronological, mm. lots of yeah. people were speaking place. In fact, I would like to hear from historians about this, because there's something about the 10th to the 12th centuries yeah. in India and in Europe, where a lot of things changed and things started uh, like the old uh, spread of elites all across the land, all communicating in Sanskrit or in Prakrits, which were mutually intelligible. They could understand each other. 
that started to give way to regions. And just around that time, the same Nambudri Brahmins started saying, well, why are we writing this stuff in Sanskrit anyway? We're writing for a local audience now. And they started using Malayalam and mixing in whenever they needed a word, because obviously there would be a lot of words that did not yet exist, because these are epics anyway. And they started taking them in mostly nouns, almost in fact, only nouns. They took them in from directly pure Sanskrit and added them into their texts. And this continued and to this day, if you were to read any technical Malayalam, political tracts or um, anything from the government, scientific uh, information, it will have this strange mix where many of the nouns will be from Sanskrit, directly Sanskrit and the, spoken in a nice clear Sanskrit accent. And um, the rest would be original, what they call it, Adi Malayalam words. Because, um, yeah, I've uh, observed this uh, because um, we have lots of classmates from Kerala and mm. they tend to sometimes talk in Malayalam over texts. So we can mm. identify certain words which are uh, yes. purely Sanskrit in nature. So it's like a Sanskrit dressing over the Malayalam, uh, dressing of Sanskrit nouns over Malayalam yeah. nouns. Right, now this is an interesting thing because that's a, that's a different kind of mixture from the North Indian languages where it was not just nouns, it was verbs, it was even the endings. Like when you say mene, this ne has come from, from uh, Prakrit, which is an instrumental case. So every single thing came out of the Prakrits and painted the language. Whereas in Malayalam, it was only certain nouns, not all nouns. But if you look, for example, at a, a sentence in an epic, you might find that half the words are Sanskrit, but they're all nouns. And it's not only in Malayalam. The interesting thing is that um, Urdu, when it became a literary language, and which is to say, as opposed to being something spoken on the street in the time of Amir Khosrow, which was 1200s. Way ahead of that, in the time of Aurangzeb, you started getting poets in Hyderabad, who are from the north, but in Hyderabad, wanting to write in Urdu. And they couldn't, in the same way, they couldn't get all the words they wanted and they just took Persian words. And if you look at Urdu, you will also find that almost all the words that are not from India are nouns. They're all the words from, they haven't taken verbs. Yeah. So um, this whole uh, kind of difference, which is between North Indian languages and on um, the kind of effect Sanskrit had in Kerala, is it mm. something to do with the kind of agency which women had in these regions? Because um, there is this whole, um, it, the, the, the society in Kerala is matrilineal. So uh, children ah. spend a lot of time with their mothers. And uh, I, it's safe to assume that they spoke Malayalam, the women of Kerala. Mm. And uh, Sanskrit was an, a paternal uh, effect of its sorts. Is it something like that? There's a 
It's not exactly like that, but it is true that the Nambudris, whatever other language they brought with them, besides Sanskrit, which obviously was not a mother tongue because eighth century, it was nobody's mother tongue then. We don't know about it. We have to, we have a hard time finding out exactly where they were from and what language they brought. But like all migrants, it seems to India, they ditched their vernacular language. All the other migrants to Kerala, the Jews who went, they kept Hebrew, but they did not speak Hebrew. Hebrew was a religious language. They had other languages because they were from Iberia, languages closer to Spanish and Portuguese. They ditched them. So people tend to ditch their vernacular language. So the point being that by the time the Nambudris were writing these texts in Malayalam or Mani Pravalam, which Mani is a jewel, Pravala is a choral, so ruby and coral together, ruby a mix. <laughs> one one uh, Dravidian word mixed with one Sanskrit word. So by the time they started doing this, even though they knew Sanskrit very well, their day-to-day -day conversations would have been in Malayalam. So they knew it. And um, in a way, they were, it was not a mother tongue in the, strict sense because their mothers would have been Nambudris, but it was the local language and everybody knew it. And I don't think anybody was speaking anything else but that, except for when they were reciting the Vedas. Um, so you talked about how uh, in this time period between you know 10 to 12 centuries, there was lots of decentralization going on and um, the language or the kind of impact which elites had, it was uh, wearing away and um, local languages were gaining prominence. So did uh, Hindi emerge uh, during this time period as we know it, or was it different um, then? Okay, my guess about Hindi is looking at things like uh, Amir Khosro and some of his Dohas that is pretty much modern Hindi. There were a lot of dialects around. Hindi was probably not as important as it is today. It was much more local, much more probably linked to Delhi, but that was its advantage. You had Braj in the Aligarh area, you had Avadhi, you had Bhojpuri and all these various other languages around and Braj was obviously more important, so was Avdi, because nobody was writing in Hindi. In fact, the only way we know about the 10th and 12th centuries as linguists, you probably have other sources as, as historians, is that suddenly things appear in writing. And same with like even Marathi and so, things that must have been spoken for a few centuries or maybe a century or two, suddenly start appearing in writing and not in literature, in the kind of things that, the kind of writing that is more immediately necessary, legal documents, business uh, lists, uh, very secular things. So you have um, 
this thing suddenly in a form that gets preserved. So we know about it. But for all we know, it was there uh, being spoken before or maybe even written before. But it seems to have a link to towns coming up and the kind of activity that happens in towns. So Delhi was a town. Aligarh was a town, but Delhi was not the most important. But by the time the Sultanate came and decided to choose Delhi as its center, that will automatically give importance to the local dialect. And this local dialect, which as we can see is a little different from Avadi and Braj and different from Punjabi and from the other languages, and there must have been so many of them, suddenly it gets like a shot of energy because even if the rulers are not speaking it, merchants must be speaking it. People who are involved in administration must be speaking it in some way. Uh, people moving in from the villages to settle in this growing town will be speaking it. So any language that, any dialect that's associated with a center of power and commerce begins to grow and get standardized. So it would it was to some extent called Hindi. Some people called it Hindi. People called it all sorts of things, Delavi. Uh, it didn't have a proper name, but from what we can see in poetry and so from that era, it existed. It isn't that it only came up much later. It, it grew as the importance of Delhi grew, I think. Um, yeah, because uh, we talked about Khusro and even though the work was written some seven, eight hundred years ago, it's not that difficult to comprehend what we yeah. are doing. It's very much the vernacular languages just spoken around the area to the state. So can we say that uh, contrary to the popular belief, Hindi had very little to do with Sanskrit as in because of its development or uh, because currently Hindi is very Sanskritized in terms mm. of the words and structure and everything. Yeah, well, that, that's uh, the Sanskritization of Hindi is something that happened in the British era. And it, they Sanskritized it in a very interesting way. They managed to get it to say the same things that official English said. What happened is that they had a certain complex. They didn't really like the lasting importance of the earlier rulers, the Mughals, in the language of the legal system in particular. So they wanted, and oh yes, and the other thing is that there were a lot of, while many Brits did not particularly want to uh, learn languages, there were a few who did. And they moved around the countryside, they heard all these dialects, they were thrilled. And they assumed that once upon a time, all the Persian words that were now in this dialect had not been there. And that in fact, so what else would be there? They just simply leapt to saying, well, it must have been Sanskrit. And as we know now, it's not so simple as that. It would have been a Prakrit, but nobody was thinking like that. They just assumed that there were two choices. There was Persian and there was Sanskrit. So they sat there, some of these British linguists, with support from people in India who were 
who knew Sanskrit and who were actually thinking, well, what a wonderful thing. All of a sudden, um, we're getting importance again. And they probably had no idea that Hindi had not really come via Sanskrit, it had come via the Prakrits and a much older foundation. But uh, the British were very clear that they wanted to be able to express certain things in Hindi and to take out the Persian out of this language. They also had the administrative power to give grants to schools in a different way. And they made a decision that it was they were going to separate Hindi and Urdu. And in the process of um, giving grants to Devanagari-based schools versus uh, Persian script schools, they got rid of another language which had been very important, in fact, more important than Devanagari, and that is Kaiti. All of these languages like Marathi and Hindi, various dialects in Rajasthan, uh, they were not written by Brahmins, they were written by merchants, uh, legal people, administrators who wanted to write for speed. And these languages look pretty much like Prakrit varieties of Devanagari. And in fact, Marathi and Hindi picked up Devanagari only after, picked it up as their main uh, script, only after the British started pushing. And with the result that there are many people in India who just have never seen the old scripts like uh, Mahajani or Moria or Kaiti. I had the luck to see them as a child because my family lived out of India for oh, over a hundred years, definitely. Uh, and, and that time these languages were still being used. My great grandfather used to write uh, letters to family in Aligarh and he wrote them in this script. So the British did a lot of things apart from splitting Hindi and Urdu as two separate things and in two separate schooling systems. They got rid of a language, uh, writing system in the North that had been far more important than Devanagari <clears throat> because Devanagari was not used much because a proper Sanskrit Pandit would be memorizing. The Vedas were memorized. They were not written. Even the many of the Sanskrit texts were memorized. So the, the need for Devanagari was not very much. It came up only when the British, so it existed, but it was not used much. And the British put it into use and used it as a way of identifying Hindi versus Urdu. When they are actually, you can tell it's the same language. Just a few nouns are different. Yeah, so what you're seeing is a perfect, perfect example of how politics and dynamics of power actually mm. affect languages. Because yeah. um, Urdu is very much Indian as is Hindi. And mm -hmm. during the British rule, uh, we saw this whole communalizing of everything which was happening into sort of categorizing everything into Hindu and Muslim. I think mm. that's what happened with Urdu and Hindi, right? Yes, very useful, very useful. The British managed to distract you totally 
to the extent that you don't ask yourself the all important question, who are these people and why are they here and why do we give them such importance? Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the legacy of this colonial rule is the English, which now you yes. and I are converging in. It's where I think both of our families have been impacted by colonial rule and both of us have the legacy of English. But uh, you've also said it in the book that the British had less to do with the sort of influence that English has on India presently. Yeah. And it's more yes. about a certain section of people. Who were these people? See... At the time that the British were here, however badly we think of uh, Macaulay, one thing he did not allow was primary education in English medium for Indian children. Of course, it would mostly be boys because boys were the ones who were going to go into the civil services. So it was really around class eight uh, that it became necessary to study in English if you wanted to join the civil service or do engineering or whatever. So the question was, what was going to happen after independence? So long debates and it's all well recorded in the constituent assembly debates. Uh, there were issues like um, Ambedkar thinking that English was equidistant from everybody, which is not really true. Uh, the elites did know better English than everyone else. Uh, the, the South was very worried about Hindi because it was seen that it had to be one language, which is not necessarily the case. Europe does very well with a bunch of languages. But uh, mm, let me see where I was getting to. Uh, yes, one thing that came that changed in India from the time of independence is firstly the British were gone, the Anglo Indians were largely gone, and certainly not powerful. And the third thing is that many private schools started opening sections to teach in English medium to very small children. This had never happened before. So my way of analyzing it is it's not so much colonialism, except that the British being the speakers of English, they brought it to India. But what had happened with Sanskrit and with Persian before was happening again, that the elites wanted a language which was different from the other languages in the country. And knowing this language would give them certain power and certainly, um, an advantage in the job market. You can imagine how many people uh, know as much as us, as bright as us, probably as more original in their thinking than us, but they will not get the chance because uh, not knowing English will disqualify them from very important and powerful positions, which uh, would make them spend a tremendous amount of time just picking up a language which has no intrinsic link with science. I mean, Chinese, Russians, Iranians, Turks, all these people are happy, French, German, they're all doing their science and everything. Iceland has three lakh people totally and all their textbooks are in Icelandic and all their 
books are print, uh, all the signposts are in Icelandic, looking very, very um, polished and as though they're done by computer. So it's a, it's a decision that people make. And I tend to think that in India, in the, the decision to keep English is because we have a tradition of elites speaking a different language from the rest. Uh, the British may have brought it, but they, it, it grew like mad after they left. Um, is it also something to do with uh, that uh, there's so much diversity of languages in India that at the time of independence, I think it was very much difficult to uh, devise one la particular language which would be used by administrators uniformly in, our, in all parts of the country. Hmm. So I think um, uh, English has, uh, the prevalence of English has something to do with that as well. That's why I think it got promoted by elites to facilitate their work. And uh, partly, yes, of, of course, if you assume that there has to be just one language, uh, then yes, you can't really mix a whole bunch of languages into one. That never happened. However, the existence of Shud Hindi was something scary to other parts of India. They might have been less upset with the kind of um, everyday, what is called Hindustani. But at the same time, assuming that even if you had English, there was no need for little three-year-old children to be educated in English. That is where I think things began to get terribly uh, classist because the kind of child who could go into a school at three and understand a class in English is an elite child. So if you, if you wanted, for example, now to have education in local languages, the people who would crib would be the elites because they would think that they are losing something. In fact, you're not. I just had an interview with a, a Hindi journalist a few days ago, um, four days ago. Her English was absolutely as good as mine and uh, she had been educated in Hindi medium up to class 12. And after hearing her, I've, I've seen people who have been educated in English medium who don't speak such good English. So it's just a language. But the problem is that by making it something that little children have to beat their heads against the wall for at the age of three, you basically said that let us keep the best jobs for our children, whether they are the brightest or not. And even if the poor are equally or more bright than us, we will not give them a chance very easily, a few maybe. So you're seeing that this is something that is a means of protecting your own. And it's not about merit because I often say that the word merit contains the same letters as mediocre. You're not worried about your brightest children. You're worried about your dumbest children. <laughs> the children who probably would not, I, in, in the West Indies, I went to a private school, a junior school, but then everything was nationalized the year that I left pri primary school. And I went into a, uh, the senior school 
the government selected who could go and we had to write an IIT type exam to go in. And for a year or so, I was thrown. I used to talk my class in primary school. My English was very good, but suddenly we had a bunch of kids whose English was not so good, but they were much more hardworking and we were struggling to keep up with them. Eventually I managed to get back, but some of my friends may not have managed. So the point being that by scrambling us and uh, getting us in through a competitive exam and no fees, it was all completely nationalized. We suddenly found that those of us who thought we were the brightest found that maybe we weren't. And that was an interesting thing and it was probably very good for the country. Yeah, what we see is when we favor a particular language, we tend to ignore various others which are spoken by people in that particular area. And uh, something which I loved in the book is when you said that languages are living beings. Mm -hmm. And if you don't give them proper care, they, they'll die. There's death of language. Yeah. So how does uh, death, of death of a particular language or languages in past affect this, particularly from speaking from a student, like a his historical point of view, because we are students of history, how will it impact us if a language dies in the past? See, if you think of a language as being a reflection of a lot of other things happening in the society, politics, economics, uh, you can't really have the language being separate. If you have globalization and you have the whole internet operated from Silicon Valley. Let's forget for a moment that China does very well without us. Uh, but suddenly there's a push towards a very monolithic approach. Everything top down, information given from somewhere. It's not participative. And there's not a notion that we want a consensus about how things go. So we're moving into a world which is much more managed by faceless people and language will follow. So language is going to start moving into the same way all the tributaries moving into a single flow because it's mirroring other changes, the economy, the way you suddenly capital flows can happen across nations in a way that it couldn't uh, when I was a child. We take for granted that the Indian rupee is convertible. It wasn't always convertible. It was very difficult. People used to go abroad for studies with $8 in their pockets. It was so difficult to get foreign exchange. So suddenly in a global world where they want you all to be participants, partly so they can control you, because if you were out there in uh, Abujmar and in Dandakaranya, you might be a little difficult to control. They would like you there speaking the same language. So even though the elite now is saying that um, we want English because it gives us an advantage, the poor are getting more and more opportunity to learn this because the market system wants them tied in very strongly. Everyone should go to school because they should understand very simple things about how a society runs, understand failure. Failure is the most important thing you learn as a student. 
and that you should avoid it at all costs and that there's certain ways to do it. So language is pulling you into a single mainstream. Now, what will that do? On the flip side, we look at, <clears throat> we see the environment being devastated. We see that most of the animals in the world are pets and livestock, not wild animals. We believe that an animal is valuable if it helps us in some way, not that it has nothing to do with us, doesn't care about us. It's living for itself. Yes, it lives for itself. So we are seeing all of these things, the whole world getting pulled into something that is human centric and not simply human centric. It's not all humans. In the time of colonialism, uh, there was a grand plan which couldn't be done in India. India just had too many people and they were too educated. But in Africa, Australia, um, South America, to just get rid of the local people, give them less and less importance, keep them the way we keep uh, our tigers in Ranthambore, uh, and have people from Europe go there and populate the world. So they, they, this idea is very linked to the way their languages also want to get rid of all languages. And we're pushing into something that I think is not very sustainable and not very good for the planet, not very good for even humans. And people a little too drunk on their power want to continue this um, decimation of everything that uh, doesn't look like them. And language is one of them. When I ended the book, I mentioned that uh, language is like a canary that you take into a mine. And uh, the objective is that it should die before you die. So when you can't even detect that the air has gone bad or is toxic, the canary is already dead. The point being that the languages die and you are living on. Uh, but you're not aware of how toxic the environment is becoming. And uh, the languages are a very good sign that we need to stop and think, at least, of where we are going. Um, so, like, continuing this whole languages as living beings metaphor, do we have any particular language or languages in India which are not in good health? Like many, yeah. What can we do to like treat their ailment? The minute you have to treat ailments, you're not talking about something healthy. Yeah. Let's think about like lions from the Gir forest. Uh, we think that they're alive because they're quietly sitting in their forest and not getting out. But from time to time, they've gone and walked on the streets of Rajkot. It's not really what you want. A good, healthy species can do things like that. Now, which are the languages in India that are distressed? Not just the tribal languages which are being forgotten completely. I think that just because a language is there in the pages of a book doesn't mean it's alive. Because alive is a very different word from saying existing. You can have a dead body, which is very much there, but it's not alive. And you can have words printed in a book which are very much there, but nobody can think in the kind of mindset of the person who wrote those words. 
So in a way that that language can be very much dead, Latin, yeah. Sanskrit. And there'll be people who say, oh, you know, there's a village somewhere in India where people speak Sanskrit. I, maybe, maybe there is, maybe they can, there are just a few people, but any language which you can only learn from a book or which you only learn after the age of five or even 10 is in technically a dead language. You're not using natural instincts to speak it. You're translating. You are something else now. So when you say that, I would say that every single language in India, besides English, has a certain degree of threat. The mere fact that you don't read thermodynamics in Hindi or Marathi, maybe you do to some extent in Malayalam and Tamil because they made an effort. You don't read about it in the Naga languages. You don't read about it in Nagamese. You might to some extent in Bengali because they're making an effort. But the mere fact that there's quite a lot of our lives that all these languages are not allowed to enter. You know, I use the metaphor in the book that it's like an Alfonso mango tree, that up to a certain age, you have a trunk and then you just cut it off. No more growth from that trunk. You strap on a more elite plant, which is fragile. It couldn't grow well in your soil, but once you strapped it on, from then on, all the fruits and flowers from that tree are going to be like the plant on top. So the early part of your life and the very basic part of your life and the part of your life that is where you interact with mechanics or painters or even accountants uh, are going to be in that first language. But everything else after that is in, in, in India's case, English. If you're going to talk about medicine, if you're going to talk about um, engineering, you're going to talk about science, atomic energy, you even want to talk about certain things to do with the administration, it's, it, it's in English. So what happens as a result is English has sort of captured that stump, that green stump, which is alive, and said, this is how much you will be allowed to grow. That is a very bad situation. Thank you, Dr. Mohan, for giving us your time. This was an amazing uh, session. You have certainly added on to our perspectives on languages. And um, this was a very learning experience. Thank you. Thank you once more. This episode of the podcast was hosted by Suyogra Guanchi from Second Year History, St. Stephen's College. The cover art for this episode was designed by Lamboy Kim Kong Sai from Second Year History, St. Stephen's College. The introductory and closing music is credited to Anu Migo from Second Year Philosophy, St. Stephen's College. Thank you everyone for joining in. We will be back with a new episode soon.